Luke chapter 15 and from verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. He began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Amen. The story actually continues, but we will just have the opportunity to feel to deal with this first half of the the, uh, the, the account, the story, uh, in just a moment. Sets of being made in the image of God is to be given freedom, and I did say that I might well develop that a little this evening. I suppose it would be fair and right to say that one of the age-old quests of mankind has been to experience freedom. I mean, you've only got to look into the Bible and read the life of Moses and to see how the most strategic thing he did in the context of receiving the law was to lead the people of God, the people of Israel, out of Egypt toward the promised land to, to, to bring them away from slavery into a place of liberty. In more recent times, in my lifetime and those of my age group, 
Mao Zedong, the uh, Chinese leader with his Marxism and so on. He led that great march. I remember reading the book on it many years ago now. And his endeavor, his passion was to lead those people into freedom. In fact, uh, Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, spoke back in 1941 about the objective, what he called the Western objectives of four freedoms. He wanted all mankind to have four freedoms. One was freedom of worship. Secondly, freedom of speech. Thirdly, freedom from want. And then finally, freedom from fear. That was a very, very wonderful objective. We haven't reached it yet even though it was 1941 when he gave it out. More recently, I mean, I don't mean just yesterday, but in more recent years, people seem to have struggled and pushed the boundaries to find what they regard as a much more ultimate freedom. We've seen freedom expressed in anti-establishment freedom, in the modern mood, in art, in all kinds of expressions of art that leave you almost breathless to look at some of it, having an art exhibition where you have a line with dirty nappies on it, and that apparently is an art expression, okay? Uh, Samuel Beckett, who was well known for all this kind of, he wrote a play called Breath, and when the curtain went up, there was on the platform, on the uh, stage, a whole pile of junk, And 30 seconds later, the curtain came down. End of play. (laughs) Just trying to show that life is meaningless and life is chaotic. And in philosophy, the greatest push of all, which is to say that we can have freedom from God. If we can dance upon God's grave, then we will be happy and we will indeed be free. I remember going into, um, I used to do a lot of schoolwork, going into a school where the children knew me very well. They were the uh, little ones. And one of them said to me, Mr. Loder, do you believe in God? It was quite a leading question to me, really. And I said, yes, my love, I do. Do you? No, she said, I don't believe in God because my mum told me that God is dead. I said, well, you better go home and tell mum that Mr. Loder was talking to him this morning and he's not even sick at the moment. (laughs) But when I walked away from that child, a bit depressed really, I thought, why would a mother want to teach a child that God is dead? There is an answer to that. You see, if I can dance on God's grave, if I can bank on the fact that he's dead, I can do my own thing. I can be immoral, I can be unjust, I can let my lower nature rule. There's no comeback, there's no judgment, there is no sense of accountability. It's a kind of freedom that people want today. I think actually, and I'm to blame more than you are because I am an evangelist, one of the things that we have let our generation down on is the whole issue of preaching accountability, that we will have to give an account of the way we've lived. When you read the newspaper every day after you've taken your antidepressant pill to read the stuff, 
and you read of the movers and shakers and the film stars and the strictly come whatever, and you see the way that they live and the way that they, you recognize that what people need to hear is that one day you will give an account of the way that you have lived. In the mid-last century, Aldous Huxley, no, earlier than the mid-century, but back in the, the last century anyway, Aldous Huxley, the great evolutionist, he wrote a famous book called Ends and Means. And in that book he said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Consequently, I assumed it had none and was able, without difficulty, to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. No God, no meaning. And he said, for myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, both sexual and political, end of quotation. It's seldom that you find such sheer honesty from these people. He spelled it out in one. It's been quoted a million times, that uh, little bit from the ends and means. If we're free from God, then we are free indeed. Jesus told a story. I guess it's one of the most well-known stories in the four Gospels of what freedom was and what freedom is not. And it has to do with this young man who ran away. This was to do with freedom. We can obviously fill in all the details of the story. We only know as much as Jesus uh, spoke to us about it, the way it's recorded in Scripture but I think there are certain things we can take for granted. Here was the younger son of this father who felt stifled at home. He was frankly tired to death of set standards, of demands upon him, and maybe of religious overtones. It cramped his spirit. Whilst he was at home, he felt under pressure. To him, freedom, liberty... Joy, happiness was out there. Problem was, he needed some cash to enjoy the freedom and the liberty that was out there. And so he went to his father and he said, you know, you've laid up some money for me in the will. Yes, I guess he knew what was coming. He said, well, I'd like to have it now. Now, you only actually come into a good of a will when the person who's made the will dies. So I don't think it's quite beyond the bounds of my saying from the pulpit that actually under his breath what this young man was saying was, Dad, I wish you were dead. Uh, that may sound rather harsh, but that's what it boils down to. Dad, the thing that stands in the way of me enjoying freedom and liberty and having a good time. And the thing that stands in the way is you. And if you died, I would come into the good of the money and I'd really get out into life as I want to enjoy it. Sounds hurtful, but it, it is kind of a reflection of the modern mood today. God, I wish you were dead. Get off my back. 
I don't want to be told that there's an accountability. If I want to go and get rolling drunk out there, I can then do so if you're out the way. If I want to fornicate, I can sleep with whoever I want because there's no accountability. If I want to cheat on my benefits or on my tax or on this, I can do all that because there's no accountability. If I keep my head down, I can get my way through. God, I wish you were dead. You know, love can be hurt. If you're a parent, you know what I say without expanding that. (laughs) But it cannot coerce. And so his father allowed him to go with the inheritance. Here he was moving out to discover real life. This is what it's all about. To use a modern term, authenticate himself without rules, without restraint. Michael Green, who was the Archbishop's choice for the decade of evangelism in this country, he wrote a book for students, which I used a great number of uh, some years ago, called Runaway World. And it was a good title and a good book. It's only a kind of small IVP book. And he showed in that book, he demonstrated how the world today is running away from God. Science running away from God. Historical teaching running away from God. And in all sorts of ways he was showing that there's a kind of feeling of escapism. Let's get away from God. I want to ask you tonight, if I might, as an evangelist, whether you're running away from God. We can hide behind the fallacy that science has disproved Christianity or evolution has disproved Christianity or running away because of suffering or running away because of the hypocrisy of Christians. How many people have told me in my street evangelism days um, that they won't get involved in the church because all Christians are hypocrites? I love the way they just throw a blanket thing out, don't you? So I had a little set answer and says, you're probably right, actually. We've made a pretty poor job. What we're looking for is people like you to come in and show us how to really do it. You, you, you come in and show, we'll all sit up and take notice. You say, Graham, you shouldn't be sarcastic. Okay, well, I'll live my life with Elijah because that's exactly what he did when he was confronted by the prophets of Baal on top of the mountain. He was sarcastic to them to try and get the point across. So away went this young man. You know, man doesn't find God for the same reason that a thief does not find a policeman. Okay, you think that one over. He went off to have his good time to authenticate himself and to really enjoy life. And one day when he was taking his last fiver out of his wallet to pay for his drink and his drugs and his goodness knows what else, he found there was nothing left. And the Bible says here in the story, Jesus said, no one gave him anything. No one gave him anything. The glorious liberty became a living death. And I still believe that that is the end for people who run away from God and turn their back upon him. 
There is no substitute for knowing God and enjoying him and enjoying his power and his love in this life. Enjoying the security he can give us and so on. And so we end up today with a generation that feels it's so smart, it's so clever to have pushed God out of the scene and out of the uh, you know, national life in many, many ways. That we end up with thousands upon thousands of people who were insecure, lonely, full of resentment, immoral, marriage problems, depression, and fear. And the Bible said no man gave him anything. Well, the world around us will help us. I'm not that bleak and uh, pessimistic about mankind. But it can't give you what you ultimately need which is a relationship with God. That's what we need, isn't it? I want to suggest that this young man that we call the prodigal son needed two things particularly, especially two things. And it wasn't more money. He needed security. And he needed forgiveness. Two great things that he was never going to find as long as he continued to run away from home. And Jesus said in the story that he ended up feeding the pigs and was so hungry that he almost would eat the pods that the, the pigs were eating. And it's to me a kind of picture of hell, really, when you were in such a hopeless pit of despair that he was in, and there was no one at that time who could help you. It's funny, isn't it, how all these people disappear, those friends that drank with you and did all the other things with you, that no longer are they there to help you because you have just simply run out of money. He was in the despair and the pigsty of life. I want to read to you the two most awful verses in the Bible. That's my opinion. You, you may have another opinion. And I don't very often read them, very seldom, publicly. But when Paul wrote Second Thessalonians, he wrote in chapter 1 these words. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in blazing fire, with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. Now, it would take me more time than I have to squeeze perhaps all the meaning out of those words, and even then I'm not sure I'm competent to do so. But what a challenge those words are. Because it says when Christ returns, as he no doubt will, he will punish with everlasting destruction those who firstly do not know God. And what a challenge that is. What a challenge that is to me as an evangelist. When I move all the time, as you do, amongst people. And so many of them, I was going to say almost the majority of them, don't know God. And have never obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They've never actually 
come by faith to Christ for forgiveness. And he says here that they will be punished with everlasting destruction. I found them the most awful verses in the Bible because they seem to cover so many, many people. I'm not here to bring a lot of misery on the church tonight, but just occasionally we need to remind ourselves that there is a side to our gospel that is incredibly important because it deals with the eternal security of human beings. People have often asked me what they, uh, I think, hell to be. I don't know. It's perhaps a situation of remorse and loneliness and an absence of love and of hope. But God underlines the choice that you make. And I want to begin to move out of this rather despairing part of my sermon because here is this young man saying death is at home with the father. Life is the absence of the father out there. And he's beginning to realize that he's got the whole thing wrong, that he is 180 degrees wrong that maybe after all, life is where the Father is, and death is out there in the place that he thought could bring him joy and happiness. I like to think of him sat on an upturned bucket, and the Bible says he came to himself. He came to himself. Some pregnant words there. And that's what my prayer is for so many people, that they will come to themselves, or if we put it another way, they come to their senses. And the magnetic call of his father and his father's face came up from his subconsciousness. He sought life and he found death. Now he's beginning to realize that from that place of death, he could go back home and find life. It is interesting how God can speak to us in those times of quietness. You know, for some years of my life in ministry, I was a leader in a work called Eurovangelism. I was a, a, you know, a director, a trustee of it. My job was to do the kind of spiritual bit while other people looked after the finances. And we struck up, not so much me, but others in the group struck up a relationship with a woman in uh, Russia, in the Soviet Union, and she was the equivalent of the lady in Blue Peter in this country. I suppose every child, or nearly every child, would at some time have watched Blue Peter. And therefore, uh, the person who runs it, I'm not sure today who, who it is, but the person who has been significant in that movement, all the youngsters would know that woman. And this woman in the Soviet Union was that woman, very, very famous across the 12 time zones of the Soviet Union. And because she was always in the public eye, she had a, a, a little retreat place, um, uh, called a log cabin, if you like, where she used to go down by a lake, and there she could spend a weekend or a few days just kind of toning down after all the pressures of life in the media. And it was as she spent time there and walked out around the lake and around the forest that she came to a knowledge of God. How much she came to 
understand the gospel in that early moment, I wouldn't know. But she began to realize that she, born, brought up in a Marxist, atheistic philosophy of life, was adrift from God, and she found God and was born again. And she became a tremendous witness all over the media of the Soviet Union, of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And I think of that woman in the context of this young man sat on his upturned bucket. He came to himself. We live in such a noisy age. Our, our young people, God bless them, I love them. I've got enough in my family. I've got a little tribe of them. But how they can't ever have peace, can they? That's the one thing that's unacceptable. You've got to have someone in your ears. Even if you go out for a run. I mean, my word, at least you can enjoy the, the leaves. And, no, 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 no. Got to have someone stuck in your ears so you're listening to something all the time. You know, to them, I think quietness and peace, you know, would be the ultimate horror. Being a bit cynical, but you know what I mean. And if only people sometimes would stop still and think and recognize the greatness of the God around them, more of them would come to faith in Christ. This young man, the father's face came up to him in his subconscious. Came to realize he was not just a naked ape. He wasn't just a mass of molecules or a collection, a common collection of chemicals. But he was a child of God. Very interesting, I've done quite a bit of reading of Nietzsche, the man who um, coined the phrase, God is dead. And he said many things that were awful. But the thing about Nietzsche that made him valuable was he was the one philosopher who faced this world up to the fact that if you dismiss God, you were heading for a kind of hell on earth. And he was honest about it. And one of the things he said, I'd love to know what he meant by it, but he said the whole of mankind is suffering from homesickness. Homesickness. And as a Christian, we grab hold of that. And we say, yes, we agree with you. Because we've left the home, we've left the Father, we've come adrift from that. And that was something he would have believed in. His book, The Gay Science, and Thus Spake Zarathustra, and books like that, who underline that not just that God is dead, but the awfulness of what life is going to be without a God. I think it was Dostoevsky who said, if God is dead, everything is permitted. If God is dead, everything is permitted. It's why we have great problems today with ethics and morals in our society and the homosexual issue and all things like this, because we've nothing to relate to. If we've come adrift from God... Where are you going to get your morals from? Where are you going to get the basis of your ethics? I've read their books, what they're trying to, to say. But, but really, it, it is a, a jumble of putting words together rather than being related back to God himself. So I said to you this morning, one of the leading atheists of our day, Peter Atkins, said that man is a bit of slime on a planet. Well, this young man had got himself into that predicament, but now... He's deciding to come back home. And there are two things here that we need to underline. We'll go on too long. Firstly, and this is so precious, all his sin, and he'd done some pretty awful things, 
did not destroy his value. All his sin did not destroy his value. My friends, I want to tell you tonight, on behalf of the gospel, you are significant. You're not just an object in a materialistic universe. You're not just a a name on a gyro check, or a digit on a computer, or a number on a doll queue. You're significant. You are of value. And we can turn away from our complexes and our insecurities and our fears and our rebellion and come back home to God. One of the great things that you will find and discover is that you are of value. The gospel restores that degree of dignity to a human being. I love that about it. It's one of the reasons I came out of engineering, to give myself as a preacher, because I could see that people could rise up with dignity to the gospel of Christ. But a joy here and there to see people's lives so totally changed through the gospel of Christ. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and in due season he will exalt you. That's what the Bible says. Humble yourself and he'll lift you up. Not humble yourself and God will only be too pleased to keep his foot on your head and keep you down and remind you every day that you're a miserable sinner and you don't deserve anything. No, he lifts you up. In due season, he will lift you up and exalt you. Lovely little story I read years ago of two men who wandered into uh, a garden shed and one of them pulled down from uh, the side wall a golf club and it was dirty, it was mangy and it was useless. And he said to his friend, do do you want this thing? He said, no, I don't need it. You can take it home and put some runner bees up it if you want, you know. (laughs) He said, well, I'll have it. He took it home and he cleaned it up and he polished it and took it out on the golf course. And that following year, wherever he went, he used that golf club. His name was Bobby Jones. And Bobby Jones was the only man who had won both the United States golfing championships and Great Britain's all in one year. And wherever he went, he used that golf club when it was appropriate. And it was called Calamity Jane. Became famous as a golf club, Calamity Jane. It was useless. It was of no value whatsoever until it was put into the hands of the master. And then he picked it up and did miracles with it. What a wonderful thing it is to see God pick up human beings who've lost their sense of dignity, their sense of value, who have sinned beyond their ever expectations in life. And he takes them and picks them up. He saves them and uses them to the glory of his name. All of his sin did not destroy his value. Secondly, all of his sin did not destroy 
his father's love. All of his sin did not destroy his father's love. Some of you know that there is a great painting, so way over there in, uh, in, in Europe, in Eastern Europe, um, the Soviet Union, as I believe it is now, um, of the prodigal son. And the great theologian Newhouse, he went to see this painting. He wrote a book about just going to see the painting. And he sat there and he gazed at it for eight hours. Two of my friends from church, Shirley and I, friends at church, they actually flew over there to see this painting about a year ago and they were mesmerized by it as well. But this very famous theologian, Newhouse, Henri Newhouse, he sat and he looked at it for eight hours and the thing that dawned upon him and changed his life was he said he always had put the emphasis on the sun, but he realized that the painting was really to do with the father. The father was the central figure. It was what was happening to the father that was so beautiful and so wonderful. My friends, I have to ask you, in the context of this story, do you think it was easy for the father to forgive? What a cost it was to him. The Bible says when he was a great way off the son, the father saw him. He saw him because he was looking for him. He wanted that boy back home. And he saw his son humiliated and broken and destitute. My friends, I have to say that whatever is or is not true about man one thing is absolutely certain, that he is not as God intended him to be. Man is not as God intended him to be. Do you think it was easy for the father to reach to that boy and fling his arms around him? He stank, he had filthy clothes, he looked as though he was debilitated, and that was never what his father wanted for the son My friend, it crucified the Father's heart. He never intended that we should be slaves to sin, to theft, to fornication, to adultery, to jealousy, and to hatred. We were intended to live as his sons upon earth, not live that way. But what was the price? The price was the cross. The Bible says he came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's what he came for. That's why Jesus came. You said he came to teach the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, he did. He came to be glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration. Yes, he did. But he came primarily to seek and to save that which was lost. The Bible says he reconciled us unto God. He brought us back. He took hold of two people that were at enmity, the Father and the Son, and he brought us back together. Hallelujah. It's like the nursing. It's a nasty illustration, but it makes the point. The nurse who goes on the ward, and she looks at someone, and they've got a horrible wound, and it's septic, and it's horrible, and she takes out of her piece of, uh, her, her little plastic bag, a sterilized piece of lint, and she puts it onto that wound, and it absorbs all the disease and the filth and the mess. And then she throws it into the bin or into the incinerator. 
and the wound is left clean. And my friend, when Jesus went to the cross, he went in perfection. He was altogether lovely, the fairest among 10,000 and the loveliest of all. And he took into himself the sin of the world. He who knew no sin became sin. So please don't downgrade your sinfulness. That's what it cost him to make you clean. And so he came home. You can come home to God to be cleansed and fed and given real freedom, the real thing, the banquet. You know, C.S. Lewis, he was such a tremendous help to the church in the mid-century, last century, as a Christian apologist. He defended the faith and uh, even answered David Hume, who was a big threat to our beliefs in many ways. But he wrote um, a testimony, a book called Surprised by Joy. And he said, I came to God through Christ. And he said, I was the most unwilling convert in England. <laughs> he kind of felt pressured into it. He, he couldn't escape the gospel. But he said, what I didn't bargain on was when I became a Christian, it was feasting, music, and dancing. Isn't that good? Well, thank you both of you. That's good. <laughs> feasting, music. It was Tremendous, it lifted his spirit and gave him great joy. And you hear the words of the father saying, This my son was dead and is alive. Isn't that ironic? Isn't that utterly, utterly ironic? Here he is at home with his father alive, and he says, That's where life is over there. So he goes over to this side. And he walks into the place of death and degradation. And then he turns in repentance. And he says, I'll go back home to my father. And the father received him and threw his arms around him. And he said, this my son was dead, but now he's alive. He's back home. He's reconciled to me. My friend, it's possible to be at home in the body but run away from God in your heart. Just in concluding, what did repentance mean to this young man? He changed his mind. He said, I have sinned. I don't think you'll ever have a true conversion until you actually say that and face up to that. If you come to God and you put your platitudes before him and say, well, I'm not as bad as he is, and I'm not like that person in the Daily Mail, and, no. When you come and say, here I am and I have sinned, I have done those things that I ought not to have done. I've left undone the things I should have done. I've sinned. He had a change of his mind. He had a change of his heart. Because he said, I am not worthy to be your son. And to feel unworthy before God is part of conversion. And then he had a change of will. He said, I will arise and go to my father. And it's that bit where people often stumble. That's why we used to call people to the front of our meetings. And perhaps we do it in different ways today, I don't know. But to actually 
act upon the gospel, to be motivated enough to say, I will arise and go back to God, the God who I turned my back upon. The Bible says, let the wicked forsake his way and let him return to the Lord, for he will abundantly pardon. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? This lovely picture of freedom. I love it. I love this story. It's another sermon for another day, I'm afraid, to look at the reaction of the older son in the story, but we won't get into him tonight. We're talking about the younger son. And I do trust if if there's anyone here who's never come in this sense that we've talked about, to acknowledge God in your life and acknowledge your need of forgiveness and cleansing. Maybe tonight will be the great and wonderful turning point for you. Amen. I'm going to ask you just to bow in prayer and then we'll sing our hymn and we're through, excepting if you want to stay for the communion. For many years I used the simple prayer to help people come to faith in Christ. It is not a piece of liturgy, certainly not a formula. It's just an expression of your heart if you want to come to God. And I've seen so many people respond through this prayer, even my own father, bless him, and my sister, brother-in-law, many other people through this simple prayer. And if tonight you want to trust in Christ and come back home, to the Father. You may like to just whisper this prayer after me, a phrase at a time. O oh God, I know that I have sinned and done many things to displease you. I ask you to forgive me my sins as I turn from all that is wrong. I ask you now to come into my life and help me to live in obedience. For your name's sake, amen. Just while we're bowed in prayer for a moment, just... Every one of us quiet before God. If you prayed that prayer, maybe you'd like to just indicate it to me. It's not anyone else in the room's going to see, but if you did pray that prayer, it sometimes helps to consolidate that decision and raise your hand, and I should know, and afterwards maybe spend a moment with you. Is there anyone here? Father, may your word not return unto you void for Jesus' sake. Amen. 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 Let's then sing.